So the reading is taken from Revelation 2, beginning at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp edge, the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can you hear me now? Do you want me to start again? (laughs) How much time have we got? Okay. Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. 
Now, I think one of the reasons why that comes up is that it is actually quite hard to hear. And so let's pray that God will help us to hear and give us the desire to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on your word together, will you help us to be able to hear and to reflect and to think, and not to be like somebody who looks in a mirror and immediately forgets, but to go away and to continue thinking and living our lives according to your will. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is writing to the angel of the city uh, of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was uh, quite a big city. It's uh, on the coast of the Aegean. So all those brochures of Turkey with the beautiful blue seas and green seas or whatever, and all the temples and stuff, that's kind of uh, what you're thinking about when you're thinking about Pergamum. It was a city that was uh, renowned for uh, being the center for emperor worship. It was the first place to build a temple to honor the emperor as uh, a god and encourage people to, um, uh, to worship him. It was also a place uh, where they had many temples to places like to Dionysus, the god of excess and debauchery. Uh, there was a temple uh, to the god Asclepius, who was meant to be the healer god and was associated with snakes and serpents. And people had to go into caves in the dark with lots of snakes in order to find their way to healing. There were a whole lot of things that were going on. And uh, it was in Pergamum that this man, Antipas, who was a member of the church, refused to bow down and worship the emperor, and as a result was executed. And so the message of Jesus coming to the people of Pergamum is that I know where you are. I know that you are in a place of suffering and pain where Satan is on the throne. And I know that in the face of this suffering, you were faithful. You didn't give up. You didn't give up on your faith. You remained true to me. And you can sense in that, can't you, the encouragement of God for this church that is facing huge struggle and pain and yet is remaining faithful to the message that they have received. All good. And I find it kind of quite comforting in a way that at a time in the world where there is potentially great strife and struggle and where it is becoming harder for people to remain faithful, God's word to them can also be his word to us, that I know where you are. I know when you are trying to be faithful. Words of encouragement. But nevertheless, verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. You know that horrible word, isn't it, when people tell you some encouragement and then say, ah, but. This is a kind of ah, but. And he says, you have a people there who holds the teaching of Balaam. Now, I went back. If you go read, back and read Numbers 23 to 24, you'll discover a bit about Balaam. Uh, most of us at Sunday school know about Balaam and his donkey. Uh, a great friend of mine who's an American uh, really struggled because it was in the, in the uh, he was reading from the King James Version in our chapel at college. And it says Balaam's ass. And as an American, he felt he could not say that. So he really struggled when he came to, ah. Oh. But anyway, the story was that Moab uh, was the king of that region. At the and so the Moabites were there. And the king of that region looked out and saw this horde of people, which were the Israelites. Now what's happening is that the Israelites have left Jerusalem, uh, ex, uh, Egypt and are now in the wilderness. Now I don't know about you, but when I grew up in Sunday school, I thought the wilderness was a desert with no people in it. That they were just kind of empty. But actually the wilderness was full of people. And it was full of different nations and different tribes who were all staking a claim to this land. And the, 
to have thousands and thousands of people who suddenly walk into your land left people feeling extremely uneasy and wanting to fight. Just as we see how when Kurdish people have moved from, Kur from Kurdistan into modern-day Turkey, very close to where we're talking about in Pergamon and so on, it immediately creates the conditions for war. So the Israelites had come into this land that belonged to other people, and they were a threat. And so the king was very concerned, and he sent a message to Balaam, and he said to Balaam, I want you to come because you're a prophet who's really proven that your words work, and I want you to curse this people. And he sent these messengers, and Balaam refused to go with them because God spoke to him and said to him, you cannot curse these people, they are mine. You may only bless them. So he sent a message back saying, I can't do that, so I can't come. The king was not having any of that. He sent him back and says, I'm going to give you so much money, it's untrue. And uh, that's my paraphrase, by the way. Um, if you come and do that. And he said, I can't, I can't do that, but says, yeah, I will go and I will tell you what it is. Now, somewhere along the line, there's a, a bit of confusion where God is saying to Balaam, yes, you go, but only to say what I tell you to say. But when he's on the way, you have this situation where he's on the donkey and the donkey starts misbehaving and it will not go through a gap. And he's forcing it and, and hitting it and so on. He gets very angry with his donkey. And eventually, God shows him that the reason why the donkey wasn't moved was because there was an angel of the Lord waiting to kill him. And so the donkey that he was berating was trying to keep him safe. And it was just a reminder to Balaam, I think, that actually God was still there. And a reminder that if you are going to go that way, even though I did not want you to originally, but I'm letting you go, make sure you only say what I tell you to say. So anyway, Balaam goes, he meets the king, he tells him what he's going to do, and he does various kind of blessings for the people of Israel and so on. But then on his way back, it seems as though he changed his mind a little bit, because that money was there, and he wanted it. And he knew he couldn't curse Israel, so he sent a message back. So Numbers 31 tells us to the king, and he says, we can't curse them, but we could seduce them. If you send all your prettiest ladies out into the fields and array themselves, then all those men uh, of Israel will kind of get caught up in it. And sure enough, that's what happened. The men of Israel saw all the women from uh, Moab and others, and they began to... Uh, there's no polite way of putting it. You know what they did. <laughs> trying to do all this, you know, with a... You know. And kind of what was at stake here was about kind of identity of God's people. It was about who they were. And what seems to have happened is that those people got caught up in sexual immorality and in the worship of gods and idols that were going on there, and probably eating in the practices and so on of what was happening. And so that was the sin of Balaam, that he took these people and brought them to such a place where they compromised, where you couldn't tell the difference between the people of God and the people who were there in the wilderness around them. Bear in mind that this is in a, also in a context of great suffering. Some of the things, if you read those stories, are very graphic. Because it is, as I reminded you, a political thing. When people come in like that, there is war, and there is pain, and there is suffering, and we should never underestimate that. But that somehow in this pain and suffering, God was still at work and speaking. And so what God is saying to the people of Pergamum is, like that, that sin of, of Balaam, it seems as though they have lost sight of what it means to live as Christians and become so caught up in the prevailing culture around them and the things that are happening that there is now no difference. 
and they have embraced the sexual immorality and the eating of food and the idols and so on and just taken it as part of their normal life. It's almost as if they can no longer see what God is actually saying and believe that what they're doing is right. And so the word of God which cuts through that double-edged sword that he talks about, which cuts through and shows you truth and falsehood, is saying, I'm coming to speak to you to help you see that truth. And the Nicolaitans, not much is known about them, and uh, probably the most likely thing is that it comes from uh, Nicholas, which, Nicola, which is a Greek word which means let's eat. That maybe these Nicolaitans were people who are saying, let's just eat everything we can, let's live life to the full to its excess, and just take everything in. And so what happens seems to be that the Christian church or parts of it have lost their identity. They've become caught up in that prevailing culture embracing the sexual excesses and greed around them and seeing that those things are the right things to do. And Jesus calls them to repent. And he says, let those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit says, let them hear. And I've kind of been thinking about this because, you know, it's kind of, there are certain things in our country that it's toxic to even talk about. Brexit and human sexuality. We can't talk about those things without polarizing people. And we have to find a way of discoursing and talking about these things that don't demonize others, but help us to really reflect deeply. And so I was thinking about this story of the thing, and what does it say to us? Well, I think we have to recognize the culture that we live in. And just reflect for a moment, and I'm not going to tell you how much I do because I'm not by any means the perfect person, but how many hours of a day do we spend looking at God's Word and being shaped by it in prayer and study? Five minutes a day on a good week, maybe? But how much of our hours of our day are spent on things like Facebook, Twitter, television, newspapers, all of which are shaping us in the thinking and the ways of the world? How easy would it be for us to get caught up in that prevailing noise and not to even realize that we're being shaped by it and that some of our values actually sometimes might owe a bit more to what we're hearing out there than to what actually our calling is in Christ. Now I can't answer that question for you, I have, can only answer it and think about it for myself, but it is a really important question because it's only when we start to allow that maybe in the life of the church sometimes, or even our own lives, we have started walking to the drumbeat of, of the rhythms of the world without even being aware of it. Because that's what is shaping us all the time, the voices that are around us. And we live in an age of unparalleled consumerism and sexual freedom. And things that were once only available to the super-rich are now enjoyed in this country, at least, by the majority of people. And we are currently going through some of the greatest upheavals in social structure that any country has actually attempted to do and any civilization has attempted to do. And I want to encourage you, don't run away from the difficult issues, but think deeply about the issues that we face, whether they be issues of sexuality or extremism or climate change. Now, I can't do that today, and I'm not going to tell you any answers. I'm not going to tell you what you ought to believe or what you ought to do. 
But I'm just going to try and just give you a suggestion of how you might begin to approach those in the light of what we've read from Pergamon. So in Pergamon, the issue was that some of the people that seemed to have got so caught up in the society that they could no longer recognize what was Christian and what was not. And so the word, the double-edged sword, the word of Jesus, the word of God, was going to speak. And so I just want to just briefly think about some things at the moment. Some of the values that we hear all the time in our society, and you can add many more, and I might not be right on them, it's just what I was seeing and thinking about this week. So don't put too much on them. And I'm really conscious that in the time available, we can only scratch the surface of issues, and that all lives and all these issues are highly complex. Because learning to live the life is a lifelong project. It's not going to happen in these five minutes. So I just want to ask for a moment, where do the values of our culture come from, of our society? And what are those values? And I just was thinking a few that I thought might be seen as values. You might disagree, but we can talk about that. One of those values that seems to be earthed in our society and everything that we do and so on is a sense of entitlement that uh, might be best sort of summed up in the you-are-worth-it advert. That we are taught from a very early age, often by our parents and others and things around us, that we have an inherent value and we have the right to certain things. We have the right to be listened to. We have the right to be happy. We have the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We have the right to have the latest technology. We have the right to have the best telephone that we possibly can. We have the right to love in whatever ways we want, regardless of the effect on others. We all deserve to be able to live our lives being affirmed in our courage, encouraged in our choices without fear of judgment. A sense of entitlement over what we are entitled to do and to be. Another value might be that value of tolerance, which we hear all the time. The sense that we are to let others live their lives and to rejoice in the fact that they're living them that way without criticism, without judgment, just tolerating them and allowing them to, and celebrating them, encouraging them in that. Except, of course, if you don't agree with that view. And perhaps the most iconic image of our time at the moment, which sums up that sense of maybe entitlement, but also of... Um, tolerance, but also of that narcissistic life, is the selfie. I challenge you to go onto any young person's uh, Facebook page under the age of 30 or 40 and not find hundreds and hundreds of photographs of them, showing them in the very best possible light. Sometimes I know that it's taken them maybe a hundred photos for some people to get to the one that they actually like, because I've seen it happen. And it's that quest, the endless quest for likes, to be somehow fulfilled and happy. But, you know, Jesus taught something different when we start to think about what he's saying. He said those very uncomfortable words, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself or herself and take up his or her cross and follow me. Now, that is a value which is getting rid of entitlement. Jesus, we're told in Philippians, said he took the form of a servant, even though he was 
the Son of God. He voluntarily gave up all his rights as a son of God and took the form of a servant even to the point of giving his life for others. It's a different kind of value. And it's not focused on me and my satisfaction and what I want to do and how I want to live my life and what I do with my body. It's focused on God and what God wants for us. And in the New Testament, identity is found not in nationalism or sexual expression or in consumerism or possessions. It's found in Christ, in his transforming and renewing grace. The world says we just have to accept who we are and rejoice in and be fully what we are. The Bible says actually what we are is damaged and broken and often hurt and God wants to fulfill us and heal us, renew us and rebuild us to become the people that he wants us to be. Our bodies, the world says, are our possessions to enjoy. The Bible says our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the thing that holds the image of God in us, holy and set apart, to be cared for and to be used in that service. I love there's a phrase in Dante's Inferno. Just, I don't know anything else, any other words in that poem of Dante, even though I was supposed to study. I just found one thing that stuck with me for years and years and years. And in it says, seek first God's kingdom and accept, and then in brackets, thrown in your earthly bliss. In other words, don't look, when we look for our own happiness, we'll never really find it. But when we look for God and accept his grace, then suddenly we wake up one morning realizing that we have found earthly bliss. Wherever we are, whether we're in persecution, whether we're in times of need, or whether we're in times of blessing. Love for Christ is never about feeling good or being able to express all our desires to the max. It is expressed through giving and service in response to his grace. Think of the fruits of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13 are about love. Love is gracious, gentle, faithful, never gives up. You can go and read them all. It's good. It's not self-seeking. The Christians in Pergamon, while they were faithful in so many ways, seemed to have become so immersed by the culture around them that they were forgetting what Jesus actually said and just going with the flow. And Jesus says to them, to the one who has ears, let them hear. And then he speaks these two uh, words there, where, uh, words where he says, to, to him who overcomes, who manages to recognize these things that are going on and to overcome those natural things and the, the voices that are coming to hear God, I will give him some, some of the hidden manna. And Jesus once said when people were asking him, don't you need some food? Because you haven't eaten for a long time. He said, my food is from God. You can't see it. And it's the food that gives eternal life. And so for those who manage to resist that temptation and to really begin to reflect and to seek God's will and to understand him in their context and be faithful comes this special gift of a food that leads to contentment and wholeness and life to the full. 
And it also says that they'll be given a, a white stone with a name written on it, a new name. Now, that could be a baptismal name. Uh, no one quite knows what these white stones are, but they do know that a, a white stone or a stone was given to people who were coming to a party or to a special event in order to be, identify the fact that they were allowed, like an invitation. And it almost seems like what the Spirit is saying. If you are faithful, if you take that time to listen and reflect and overcome, you will receive this invitation, this guarantee of that place at the feast in the kingdom of God. And you'll carry it with you. And it'll be a constant reminder to you of where you belong and who you are. So as we approach all of the things and these big discussions that are going on, the huge polarization around all these issues, let's resist the temptation just to adopt a point of view and shout at the other person who we think is wrong because that doesn't work. God values everybody. God values each of us, even the people we disagree with, and wants us to be affirmed as human beings because that is the value he places on us. But he also wants us as Christians to be aware of that tendency to get swept up in the great movements and cultural movements of society which often are leading a long way away from what God desires. I think if our culture was right, we wouldn't be seeing highest levels of mental health issues ever. We wouldn't see situations where people who work in schools are giving up because it's too hard and the pressures are too great. We wouldn't see the situation where somebody said to me that in my school, more than 50% of children are classified as having special needs and, and being vulnerable. We wouldn't see the highest levels of self-harm. If really these things that our culture is telling us are really so great and so wonderful, because we can't lay it on the church anymore, because the church hasn't really had very much to do with public morality for many, many decades although we've been in church not noticing. That's probably fair enough. Let's hear what God is saying. Let's love people and let's ask, how can we really understand what God is saying to us? What are the values that inform us in these discussions that will lead us to the place where we understand more fully what it means to live the life? And we're all of us responsible for that engagement in our own lives. Neither Joe nor Paul and I can tell you what to think or do. God has given us his word. He's given us minds. He's given us hearts. He's given us his spirit to lead us into that truth. And that's an adventure that we're all called to be on. Amen.